1: In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn, and the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but
2: I'm walking with the dead.
1: Over the last couple of weeks, The Murder Diaries has gotten so many more downloads So many new listeners. We are so thankful for all of you. And of course, for our continuing listeners as well. Natalie and I wanted to make sure that we welcomed all the new listeners and took some time to let you know at the top of the episode where you can find us. One of the main places you can find us is at the Murder Diaries podcast. Dot com. You can read a little bit about Natalie and I. You can listen to the show from there. And also, most importantly, you can find our merch there. What's really cool about our merch is that Natalie and I designed each piece in collaboration with my sister, actually, who drew and designed the skull flower and bee design that you will see on each of our merch pieces. So check it out. Enjoy. And if you've been listening for a while and didn't know we have merch, go check it out. Natalie, tell them where they can find us on social media. You can find us at Instagram and TikTok at the Murder Diaries pod. We've been
2: having so much fun with TikTok and just creating new content. We cover the cases that we have episodes for. And we've also started a new series on badass women throughout history. We're doing this every day for the month of March.
1: Go check it out. You won't regret it. Don't be a stranger and check us out. Now let's get into the reason you're all listening. This week's episode. Jessica Arrow was a teen mom from Stockton, California, who had her whole life ahead of her. In June 2006, she had just graduated from high school and was celebrating her milestone 18th birthday. After a night of birthday festivities with friends, Jessica would unfortunately not make it back home. She was later found in a delta of the San Joaquin River. The question remained what happened to Jessica Arrow? This is her story. Jessica Ray Arrow was born June 6th, 1988. She lived with her mom, Don, and her two brothers in Stockton, California. Stockton, California is a city in Northern California. It's also in California's Central Valley, located in the portion that is called the San Joaquin Valley. It is about 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of the state capital, Sacramento. Unfortunately, there weren't a lot of resources out there about Jessica's case. And with that, we didn't get to learn too much about Jessica's background, but her mom does remember her in an interview as, quote, a really fun kid, end quote, growing up. By 16, Jessica had her son, Christopher. According to the documentary I watched, her son was two in 2006. So that puts Jessica at about 15 or 16 when she had him. Shortly after her son was born, Jessica and his father, Travis, broke up. They did co-parent, however, and they did share custody. So her son was with his father part of the time and Jessica the other part of the time. Growing up, Jessica and her mom were always super close. But her mom recalls that after Jessica became a mom herself, they got even closer. In the late spring of 2006, Jessica had just finished high school, and she turned 18 that June 6th. She was also studying to become a medical technician. On Friday, June 16th, 2006, it was time for Christopher to go with his dad. Jessica was ready for some downtime, too, and she was ready to celebrate her birthday, so she decided to throw a barbecue at her mom's house to celebrate her recent 18th birthday. And it was just going to be with some friends. By midnight, her mom said it was time for everybody to go. It was getting a bit loud and rowdy, and she was ready for bed. It was a Friday. It had been a work day. She had worked a long day, as she recalls in an interview, and she was ready for the teenagers to go home. As the teens dispersed, the party then moved to Jessica's friend Faith's house. Jessica was going to go ahead and spend the night there, actually, and she was just going to come home in the morning, which made sense. It's after midnight. She was going to stay there, party a little bit more, and then come home in the morning. That didn't happen, though. Instead, at 10 a.m., Jessica's mom gets a call. It's Faith, and she's worried about where Jessica is and if she was at home now, Dawn wasn't too alarmed by this call at first because Jessica was pretty responsible and her mom really admired her. Like I said, they'd been getting close as Jessica grew as a mom. But then Faith went on to explain that Jessica had been looking for a ride to somewhere else late last night. And that was the last time she saw her, which was around 2.30 a.m. She further explains to Don that Jessica had used her phone to call then boyfriend Nathan, aka Nate, since Jessica's phone wasn't working at the moment. Faith thinks that maybe Jessica might have tried to walk the five miles to his house. She doesn't know for sure, though. And that's when Dawn decides that she better hang up with Faith and try and get a hold of Nate. Before she can even dial his number, her phone rings again and it's Nate. He too was asking, where is Jessica? And this worried Don even more. Now the alarm is really sounding. During this phone call, Nathan says that he never saw Jessica. He does mention, though, he had a missed call from Jessica from 2.30 a.m. with no voicemail left. Nate had missed Jessica's call because he fell asleep around 1 a.m. Don basically just sat and watched the door for the rest of the day, wishing to see Jessica walk through it but she never does. After a while of Jessica not returning home, the family starts calling around to see if anybody has information or knows where she might be. Meanwhile, that same day, two jet skiers found Jessica's body at around 4 p.m. at a delta of the San Joaquin River called Windmill Cove. Reporter Scott Smith explains that Jessica was found on a bank still partially submerged in the water. Her body's condition, according to Scott, showed pretty quickly that this was a much bigger situation, not a drowning or something like that that you might also see in that area. Sergeant Dave Oliver arrived at the scene where Jessica's body was found and echoes Scott's statement that it was clear something sinister had happened to her. Jessica suffered extreme trauma to her head and her face. Her knees and elbows also had abrasions she was dressed in a denim miniskirt and a men's t-shirt. To the detective, it didn't seem like that was something that would have been an outfit that somebody would have put together. What's more is that Jessica wasn't wearing shoes, a bra, or underwear. Whoever had put Jessica in that Delta was trying to hide her. It also makes you wonder
2: if the person who put Jessica here dressed her because why else would she be missing a bra
1: underwear, shoes, anything that you would normally wear. I think Sergeant Oliver would absolutely agree with you. And it was definitely insinuating that in his comment about it didn't seem like an outfit somebody like Jessica would put together. Something else to note about the outfit that Jessica was wearing is that whoever had put her body there lodged rocks into the shirt that she was wearing in effort to weigh her body down, maybe make it sink beneath the water there was also another rock attached to her left wrist by a shoelace. The only reason Jessica didn't stay submerged was that the tide changed. And once the tide had lowered, her body became more exposed and thus found by those jet skiers that found her. Now, Jessica's body was not found with anything really identifiable besides a tattoo of her son's name that she had on her lower back. Detectives needed to figure out who the victim was. We're calling it Jessica's body, but we have to remember, detectives did not know yet who this woman was that they found. Of course, with that, they took note of the tattoo and its more unique spelling. Christopher was spelled with a K. It's not unheard of to spell Christopher with a K, but it's certainly more uncommon and at least made for a means of identification. That takes us to June 18th. Jessica still had not shown at home. Her mom knew that it was time to make a missing persons report. Of course, when making said report, they were asking for identifying marks or tattoos that Jessica might have, and Dawn listed the Christopher tattoo on her back. Luckily, the officer that was taking the report was aware of the unidentified victim the jet skiers had found. And... They knew that the tattoo said Christopher. So they figured, hey, this might likely be related.
0: Is your daily grind getting you down? A ThermoSpa's hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Sergeant Oliver
1: goes to Don's house and breaks the news. As he was talking to Don, two-year-old Christopher woke up and the sergeant met the face behind the all-important Christopher tattoo that helped identify Jessica. This really motivated him. He recalls in an interview that he knew he wanted to solve her case and he made a promise to her family that he would find who murdered Jessica. You can tell how
2: emotionally charged this moment must have been for the officer because that's not a promise officers tend to make to families because they're so hard to keep. You just never know if you're going to be able to
1: solve a horrific crime like this. He got right to work, too. He started by speaking with Faith. Remember, this is the friend whose house they moved the party to that night. He was hoping that Faith could explain more about what had happened that night. As he began speaking with Faith, she was very distraught because she had actually just learned from Dawn that Jessica had been murdered. The sergeant made sure to mention in his interview, though, that Faith appeared very eager to help, of course. Faith tells him that Jessica's birthday party did continue at her house after they left Jessica's and it continued until about 2 a.m. that Saturday early morning. Jessica, Faith, and Faith's boyfriend were all left at Faith's house. She says that Jessica was sort of feeling like a bit of a third wheel and she decided she wanted to go and go to Nate's house, who was the on-again, off-again boyfriend. Jessica asked Faith's boyfriend for a ride, but... He wasn't really willing to drive, but he did say he'd take her in the morning. We could make assumptions here about underage drinking, whether they were or not, but the bottom line to take away from this is that the morning is when he told Jessica he could take her to Nate's house. Jessica decided at that time, though, that instead she would just walk to Nate's house and Faith never saw her again. This still left questions, though, for detectives, like how did Jessica end up from walking on the side of town where Faith lived to the Delta murdered. So Sergeant Oliver headed back to the scene where her body was found. He scoured the area for any more evidence and that effort was not for nothing. They discovered muddy footprints and markings just yards away, directly adjacent from where Jessica was found. The muddy footprints and markings told a story of Jessica running away from someone, something, then falling down a steep embankment, leaving markings from her fingers as she grasped the mud, trying to slow her fall. It was clear that Jessica had been running for her life. Detectives discovered that Jessica, quote, literally ran out of her shoes, end quote, which said shoes were discovered stuck in the embankment's mud. Along with those shoes, detectives discovered what's described as a, quote, wadded-up shoelace, and it matched the shoelace that tied the rock to Jessica's left wrist. It was clear that the cold-blooded killer, Jessica's murderer, had used her own shoelace to tie that rock to her left wrist and try and weigh her down, never to be discovered. Thank goodness they didn't know about the tide change, or she might not have ever been found, at least if it were up to the murderer. Keeping that in mind, San Joaquin Coroner Robert Lawrence said in his interview that he's worked 900 homicide cases and that Jessica's was, quote, significantly brutal. He's obviously not wrong. It was found that Jessica had been sexually assaulted and the beating happened over a period of time. Her skull had even been fractured, but that wasn't what killed Jessica. Water was found in her lungs. This proved that she was alive when she had been left in the water weighted down with those rocks. She was most likely unconscious, however, unable to even have had a chance to save herself from drowning. In a good bit of news for her case, if you can even call it that, Jessica's body had resurfaced with the DNA of her murderer still in a condition in which they were able to collect. And now detectives just needed to find out Who did this DNA belong to? Next on the detective's to-do list was to visit Nate, the on-again, off-again boyfriend. When they got to his house, he had just received the news as well that Jessica had been murdered, just like when they had arrived to Faith's house. And he too was distraught and he was actually actively being consoled by his family when they arrived to speak to him. Detectives brought Nate down to the station for questioning and he stuck to his statements that he did not see Jessica that night. He even expressed confusion as to why, according to Faith and his missed call from Jessica, that she was trying to come over. He had no idea that she was going to be trying to come over is basically what we're seeing here. He continues in his conversation with detectives that he fell asleep and he did not see Jessica's missed call until the morning, just as he had told Dawn. He emotionally expressed that if only he hadn't missed Jessica's call, maybe, just maybe, things could have been different. When asked if he had anything to do with her death, he said, quote, I loved her. I could not hurt her. The emotions and all of Nate's statements seemed to be truthful, and detectives believed him. He was cooperative and didn't have any type of troubled history with the law. Nate, gave a DNA sample while he was at the station, and he also encouraged them to check into the father of Jessica's son, Travis. Now, Don also thought that it was important that detectives look into Travis. He and Jessica had had a rocky relationship. Don says that they, quote, bickered more than they did anything else, end quote. We know that Travis had visitation with Christopher that weekend and picked him up on the 16th. However, detectives needed to find out if the two saw each other at all later on that night. So, of course, detectives speak with Travis and he was cooperative as well. And he admits that, yes, we had a rocky relationship. But when he was asked if he killed Jessica, he, of course, says no. He says that that night he spent the entire evening with his current girlfriend and Christopher at home. girlfriend backed up the alibi. It's around this time that Faith came back to the station with a friend that's new to the case, Eric. The pair says that they need to come clean about something. They need to come clean about something that happened the night that Jessica went missing. Eric opens up to detectives and he says that he cheated on his girlfriend that night with Jessica. He says he and Jessica left at the same time though, which was around 2.30, and they went in their separate directions. His roommate confirmed that he came home that night. Eric and Jessica did have this attraction brewing for a bit and he genuinely cared about her and detectives didn't think he was their guy, but it presented a big issue because now they had to know was the foreign DNA that they found in Jessica's body, did it belong to Eric? It should be noted that Eric did tell detectives that he and Jessica used a condom and he gave them a DNA sample, again, cooperatively. So now they had DNA samples from Eric, Travis, and Nate. None of those three samples matched the foreign DNA collected. With that, all of their potential suspects were now eliminated. And now for a word from one of this week's your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. We thank PROS for sponsoring this episode. Detectives had sort of hit a dead end with that, but they weren't giving up. Tips were starting to come in every day from the community. Unfortunately, none had led to any solid leads. Jessica was laid to rest with a celebration of life that was on Monday, June 26, 2006 at DeYoung Memorial Chapel in Stockton. Since all the possible suspects had been eliminated, the DNA profile that had been collected by detectives had qualified to be entered into the national database six months later. They were hopeful that they would find a match there. And guess what? They did. 27-year-old Richard Potts. Richard had a bit of a history with the law and he had served a three-year sentence just 10 years before for a voluntary manslaughter charge when he was involved in a shooting. At the time that Jessica was murdered, Richard was living in Stockton on a street that Jessica would have been walking on that night when she left Faith's house. Detectives paid Richard a visit in jail where he was currently serving time for a parole violation for a car theft charge. And at first, Richard denied that he knew who Jessica was at all. This is actually the response that Sergeant Oliver wanted, believe it or not, though. Because now they already knew they had his DNA from Jessica's body, and this would ruin his credibility if he tried to backtrack on trial and say that, for whatever reason, they had been intimate that night. For good measure, they took a new swab of Richard's DNA, and as expected, it was still a match to the foreign DNA collected from Jessica's body detectives also took the time to search Richard's home this is the home that he shared with his girlfriend they didn't find anything that pointed to Jessica's murder there but it freaked his girlfriend out and she starts to wonder if he had murdered Jessica of course phone calls are recorded when you're in jail and in one call with the girlfriend Richard is being questioned and the girlfriend says the detectives came back today and he asks what they say and She says, they talked to be a friend of theirs. And Richard asks, what'd she say? And the girlfriend goes on to say, she said, you had a whole bunch of scratches all over you. Like right around the time that girl came up missing. That um, you had a whole bunch of scratches all over you and you wouldn't tell her how they happened. They said that they have more than one thing that links you to that girl. On May 16th, 2007, Richard Potts was arrested and charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder. Sergeant Oliver remembers of his arrest that, quote, it was at that moment he realized he had been caught. It was all he could do to brace himself from falling down, end quote. Don says, quote, I was so proud of my detectives, end quote. And these detectives really did keep their promise to Don. They did, but the story with Richard wasn't entirely over. On May 27, 2008, he escaped from the courthouse. He tried to carjack a woman, but luckily civilians subdued him a couple of blocks away. That's unbelievable, especially given the fact that it's 2008. An inmate was able to escape. It's truly unreal. A year later, on March 11, 2009, Richard Potts was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Jessica's mom, Dawn, says, quote, for every day he spends in prison, it makes it a better day for me, end quote. Unfortunately, Richard Potts never did formally confess, and without that formal confession, we don't know exactly what happened to Jessica, but it is held that Jessica was walking alone in those early morning hours of June 17th, and on that walk, she must have crossed paths with Richard at some point. They think that Richard must have been in his car and got Jessica in his car as well, possibly by force or manipulation, and that's where she was assaulted. The theory continues that Richard then drove them to the delta where he planned to murder her, but that's when Jessica seized the opportunity and ran. He followed and caught up to her. He then attacked her, beating her into unconsciousness before putting her in the water where she drowned. As difficult as that is to state for this episode, you can only imagine what it's like hearing that as Jessica's family and friends. And I want to leave us with a quote that's also really tough to read in here. It's a quote from Jessica's mom, and she's speaking about Jessica's son, Christopher. Quote, the person that killed his mom didn't just take one life. He took the life Christopher would have had, had his mother still been here. End quote. I think that's where we'll leave this episode. Until our next, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram and TikTok, at the Murder Diaries and the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com. And if you haven't already,
2: go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing.